So welcome to webinar four in our 2021 series, Upskilling for MSL Excellence, Adapting to the New Normal. Uh, I'm Helen Kane, CEO of OneMSL, and we're really excited to welcome our esteemed panelists to this webinar together with all of you who have joined us online. So I, I'm just going to take a moment to introduce the panel. We have Donna Holder, uh, Global MSL Excellence from Daiichi Sankyo in the US. We have Jim Holmes, uh, Global Medical Affairs Training, Alexian, and Taylor Spector, uh, Medical Communications and Training from Sobe. Welcome back, Taylor. And, and last, but by no means least, we have Kevin Woodhams, um, our Learning and Development Lead here at One MSL. It would be really great to kick off with a poll. So um, for those of you that are on the line, it would be nice for us to know which of the following best describes your role. So please tick the box that is closest to, to your role. Each webinar, we seem to get a fantastic mix of attendees. So um, today, I think, is no different. So we've got excellence leads, capability leads, managers, Enroll MSLs, aspiring MSLs. So we've got some of everything. So uh, the greatest majority, and this will be interesting to our panelists, we have a number of excellence leads and medical capability leads, and but we also have Enroll MSLs. So um, it's a, a mix that will hopefully result in a good a richness of conversation. Uh, just to clarify, the objectives of this webinar or to explore the topic of upskilling in relation to MSL and medical excellence. So really, it's about the conversation. This is not intended to be uh, a skills workshop. It's, it's a conversation between the industry and participants. So why is this webinar really important to us? And, and as you know, this is, this is part of a series. And, and, and I haven't shown this slide previously, but Hopefully, when you look at this slide, you can see that this topic in particular is really what drives us. This is our passion. And, and we learn a huge amount from engaging within the industry. And we see these webinars as an opportunity, not only for us to learn from industry, but we hear time and time again from panelists and participants of the value that they have derived from the conversation. So this topic in particular is um, a great source of passion for us. Let me just start with um, a definition for upskilling. And I think that uh, we can see in the slide that it's either about acquiring new competencies or, or taking your competencies to the next level. And, and upskilling, when we're talking about it in the context of this webinar, we're seeing as separate to onboarding and the idea of functional onboarding. So it's the competency enhancement. It's the, the, the whole piece around skills and capability. And for the MSL, we talk about the triangle of success and about the essential competencies. And of course, we all know that scientific knowledge and expertise is foundational to the role of the MSL. But for us, that sits alongside engagement excellence and business acumen. 
So all around the core uh, of, of the individual role. So let's now get to the panelists and, and let's hear what they have to say around the topic of upskilling. So Taylor, can I start with you? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on why upskilling is really important for the MSL of today? Hey, thanks, Helen. This is such a great question, and I have a list of reasons that it is, but I'll focus on one and leave uh, enough for Donna and Jim to add on to. I think that what we have seen is we have um, far savvier KOLs than we have had in years past, and I think that the pandemic has accelerated that. And what we have now is this group of HCPs and KOLs who are very adept at getting the information that they need. And upskilling is critically important now more than ever so that our MSLs are actually um, showing up, providing value very clearly to their KOLs. And, and um, honestly, the time demands on KOL's time as well, you know, showing up, doing it well and doing it efficiently. And, you know, I think it's critical for us to become more than just those scientific experts and those people showing up to deliver data to be able to do that and continue to provide value as we see this digital evolution of our industry. So I think that's one critical reason. And I'll be interested to hear what the other panelists have to say too. <laughs> Well, there's a number of really great reasons there. Yeah. Okay, why, why don't I come to you, Jim? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, thank you very much, Helen. And I think Taylor took a, a great stab at starting uh, from where we are. And I think as part of the value of upskilling that I, I think is critically, critically important is for us to approach the KOLs and all of our stakeholders um, they can get the information, as Taylor alluded to. We, we pull it down. We can all get the information. But it's being part of the solution that we have to get to. And it's coming into it with a solution-based mindset uh, that we have this. It's not just about giving the data and pumping it to them for where they are. They can get that, uh, as Taylor alluded to. But it's really understanding and upskilling our engagement piece so that we're better at digging in and seeking to understand and then really becoming, helping them to provide part of the solution that they face every day. You know, they have the hard part of looking across the exam table at a patient and having to make a clinical decision. There's so much data going through their mind and so many different components. How can we help make that decision process a little bit easier? I think that's, a, that's the upskilling part we need to be better at. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. So Donna, I'm quite sure with all of the experience that you have had that you've got lots of thoughts on this topic. What are you thinking? Yeah, so I just ditto to the comments that have been mentioned earlier, but I'll say that, you know, I've been MSLing in one form or fashion for about 30 years as an MSL or as a leader. And when I think about it, you know, the thing we always hear about is change is a constant in our industry. And that's no different for the MSL role. Um, I ha actually had the pleasure of one of the original MSLs from Upjohn working for me. And when I think about his role, when the MSL role was introduced and it was in 1967, when I think about that, that was drastically different from when I was in MSL in 1997 or 1998. And then, you know, I think about what I did there compared to 10 years later, which looks different. And then now in the world of today, 
the change has only been accelerated because of the pandemic. And that's why we talk about these new skills. So we constantly need to reinvent ourselves in our world. You know, scientific exchange will always be the constant. Insights will be a constant. But how we look, how we do it and what it looks like will be a little bit different. And again, I just look at, you know, I'll just give the example. When I was in MSL, I would go to an airport and a sales truck would pick me up and we would go and see customers that we would call them customers then. And what I was doing was legitimate scientific exchange, but that there's no way all our policies say that that's a no-no today. So again, thinking about what looks different, we need to be able to evolve and, and think differently and have new skills. Thank you, Donna. And Kevin, you know, I think you're, you've got a really interesting perspective on this with with your background. So, you know, you've got a really rich background in the industry, but you've worked in both the commercial and the medical space. And you've really seen the evolution of this role through, I, I think it's a different lens and I think it's a really helpful lens. So what are your thoughts about, about this? <laughs> So, so, so I think everything that's been said set up till now is is absolutely spot on, and I think Donna alluded to it then. That the, the pandemic has only been the accelerator of this change. It was coming anyway, so the role needs to evolve, and people within the role need to evolve with it. So I don't think you know when we say why does upskilling matter? I don't think we've got a choice. I actually think if we're going to meet the needs of our HCPs and ultimately the patients, then we need to be focusing on this scientific exchange, which, which Donna, I think, actually called out by name. Because yes, our, our, our HCPs, KOLs, can access that information online, but it's the exchange that will bring it to life. It's the the, the discussion that will help people make sense of the data. So therefore, the, the MSL of today and tomorrow needs to evolve with it and have the skills that aren't simply about sharing information. It's having the ability to question, to challenge, to discuss in the true sense of the word, because that's what HCPs want. But they don't want it one way. They want it individualized to their needs, which actually makes that, that, that kind of skill set even more varied. So it's not this is, I'm an MSL, this is how I am, this is what I do. It's uh, I happen to be an MSL and I'm going to do what you need me to do in order to make this work without considering that a service provision. It's about developing a peer-to-peer -peer relationship. Yeah, I, and we are going to come to, to this whole idea of individualised engagement. I, I, I think one of the learnings, or certainly one of the observations that I have made, is that, you know, when we, when we stand in the shoes of the MSL and we think back to the triangle of excellence and, and we think about, you know, the calibre of MSLs that we have today and our, on our teams, you know, with this true depth of, fantastic scientific knowledge and expertise and, and, and the passion that they have for their subject and for doing the right thing by the patient. And, and I, I often say to people, you know, can we for one moment, let's think about this, not through the eyes of our company, irrespective of what company it is, 
but through the eyes of our stakeholder and what their needs might be. Because actually, if we do that, we see the world through a different lens. And, and, and I think, as you've all said, you know, information is available at the touch of a press of a screen or the touch of a button. I think that what, what we really need to be thinking about is building these relationships. And, and at the end of the day, they are human to human relationships that we're building. And, and it's this whole piece about EQ and about business acumen and about engagement excellence and, and wrapping it all up uh, you know, around this core of excellence. So I believe that the role, so I, I'm with you, Donna, because I too was the MSL back in the 90s. You and I are kind of, in, in terms of our history, we've got very similar recollections. The MSL of today, it's, it's a wonderful role, but it does come with challenges. So I think upskilling is critical in order to be fit for purpose, whatever that purpose might be. So thank you guys. It's a really, it's a really great start to the conversation. And, and so, so yes, yeah, so here we go. You know, we, we have this slide and, and this is probably where I was when I was my, was the MSL and Donna's nodding her head. You know, it, it was, that's who we were. And, and much has been spoken about this idea of the MSL being this strategic partner, you know, this trusted uh, expert. But in order for us to move from here to here does require an enhanced set of competencies. And five years ago, we invited industry to, to share with us words that they associated with MSL and medical excellence. And, and I've, I've presented this previously, and you can see that the words here are very much about the science and about the engagement. It, that, that really is linking back to that reactive support function. And in an earlier webinar, we invited industry participants to share with us the words that they would use today. And this is what they told us. And, and you can see in the words that they've used in 2021, how these words now relate to the evolved role of the MSL. So in order for us to be able, these are words associated with excellence, what are the competencies of, that are then associated with that? So that's you know, a great topic of conversation. And as we've said, and Kevin has spoken to with great passion, you know, COVID came along and, and it has kind of accelerated everything that's happened. So now let's explore, and, and I'm really keen to hear from all of you, um, Jim, let me kick off with you. I suspect we're going to end up with a huge long list. Kick off with <laughs> what you think are, are the enhanced competency needs for the MSL of today. What are your thoughts? I, I think it's funny, and as, as Kevin uh, alluded to, the, the great accelerator, uh, I look at it as being a side effect of COVID, uh, if you will. Of we, we not only accelerated our 2020 plans, but also 2021 and 2022, and squeezed them all into about a six-month time period. Um, but I, I think the, the competencies of today that are really going to, to set us as medical affairs professionals and MSLs out above is listening first. And, and I, I think in a conversation with, with Kevin at one time earlier, 
he approached it and Kevin, correct me if I get it, if I get it wrong, it was listening with intent to understand and not reply. And that's a skill that we just need to be better at because as I talked about earlier, being solution oriented, we need to truly seek to understand what the question is. And it's, it's really about listening, pulling that in. That's not a new skill. It's something that we can all, all always get better at, whether it's a professionally with our KOLs or probably sometimes at home with a family, we need to be able to listen a little bit better with two ears and one and only speak with one mouth. I think the part that kind of isn't companion with that is when we look at when we're presenting data and that we look at it, it's about presenting data. It's our presentation skills, but it's not just about, you know, standing and giving your traditional presentation skills, but it's about presenting data with applicability and not just dumping knowledge. That's, when we've listened and we truly understand that's when we can answer and present the things we know with applicability to whatever that challenge is. I think that's the biggest thing. That's a great starting point. So Donna, what what would you add to where Jim started us on our, on our master list? Yeah, I think, um, I think as a great segue from what he said and, and actually echoing what all the speakers have said already, around you know the data's out there and these days you can get the data anywhere in a second but it's really about the contextualization of that data really making sure that it makes sense for the K- KOL that you're talking to and their patient population and in order to do that there's a couple competencies i think are extremely important one is digital technology and, and i mean that i think is just being able to use the technology to be able to do virtual but I'm talking even more so around some of the new data tools around artificial intelligence, machine learning, the ability to take big data and really understand patterns so that when you go to see your KOL, you have answers that they didn't even know they were gonna ask you and that they wanted. So really being able to use those analytical skills to be able to use that technology. And you know, I still think we're a little bit far away from that, um, but that's going to be something that we need to master. And the other one that I'll mention related, um, again, in being able to contextualize the data is understanding the landscape, the healthcare landscape, the environment that your KOL works in, because in order to contextualize that data, you need to be understand the world that they're living in, because depending on the environment they're in, it can be very different from somebody else that you're talking to that also wants to understand the same data, but it might look very different. Fantastic. Thank you, Donna. I think, I think the whole digital technology is, is probably a webinar in its own right, but, but you're, you're absolutely spot on with that. Taylor, let's hear from you. Yeah, and I'll just echo something that came in through the chat about scientific storytelling. Rainy, you are so spot on there. That's the way I talk a lot about what Jim just explained, is being able to tell a great story with the science and bring to life the data that you're actually presenting and talking about. So kudos there. I actually use like the same terminology. Um, so I, I'll, I'll add two kind of competencies to the mix. I think um, one really critical competency as we see a shift in our industry towards medical affairs in general is this shift to being more strategic about all things that MSLs are doing in the field. So, you know, we talk a lot about um, 
being the CEO of your territory and running your territory as an MSL like a business, understanding kind of from the whole picture of your territory, what's happening and what are the trends there? And then how do you plan and take those things that you can learn about your territory and individualize them to your KOLs? basic things like making sure that you have a plan and objectives for each individual interaction, right? Um, and being very strategic about what those things are and what you want to accomplish and how those are going to move your HCPs or your thought leaders um, towards your corporate goals and also your individual goals. So I think this idea of putting on a highly strategic hat, even in an individual contributor role, is one that will be really critically important for MSL success moving forward. And I think the other one I'll mention here is, is a little bit different than everything else we've talked about, but a little more introspective. And that is the ability for our MSLs to really approach their role with a growth mindset. And this idea, Kevin's laughing. I love growth mindset. I talk about it all the time. Um, this idea that we, we talk about medical excellence and MSL excellence, but to Donna's point, that benchmark is always going to move. And so having a growth mindset and being willing to kind of come at challenges and changes in our industry and look at them as an opportunity to do something new and gain new skills is another thing that I think will be important because as we've all said, change is pretty much the only constant that we have. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I I'm, I would really love to, to, to get deeper into this, and, and I'm sure that Kevin's got lots of, you know, interesting thoughts and ideas, but there's a lot that we want to cover, and we want to really involve the participants on the line. So, so, so I'm going to move us on and ask this question, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'll start with you, Kevin. How about that? Maybe that will compensate. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, so how should we, because... Because I think what Taylor has just, and Taylor, you've given us the segue again, you know, the only change, uh, the only thing that is constant is change. So how should we be communicating to MSLs and others why upskilling is necessary? Because sometimes what we hear from folk is, look, I've been doing this role for 15 years, you know, and, and, and I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really, I, I really feel that I'm very, very confident. And, and it's back to the mindset piece. So, so what are your thoughts on this, Kev? Well, I, I, you, I see it in a slide, Helen. So if you can um, move us on. Ah. Brilliant. And, you know, for, for, for any of the leaders um, in the room and, and, and other panellists, please feel free to push back on this one. But what we often see is that um, people are told what training they're going to go on so it's in the diary, you're expected to attend a meeting for three hours next Thursday, and we're just going to discuss virtual engagement, for instance. And, and, and that we often forget the why we've decided to, to, to run that. So what does it link to? Um, and, and what we should be doing is starting with that why, because anyone attending the training, to, to stop what you've just talked about, Helen, to stop this, I've been doing the job for 15 years, I don't need it giving people the context of why we believe this training to be relevant. So what is it about the environment that's changed? What is it about our HCPs? What is it about the role that means that this training is going to be valuable? Then we talk about how it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. Because unless we start with the why, people won't buy it. And actually, we need people to want 
to be there. We want people to have this growth mindset, to think that training is has a positive intent. It's not a task to be ticked. It's something that's going to help them grow and help them achieve what they need to achieve and enjoy it while they're doing it. You know, learning and growing should be about enjoyment. It shouldn't be about another weight to carry. And um, I'll let the others have a word on that now. Any, any panelists like to comment on this? You know, how we should be communicating the need for upskilling? I'll just add really quick, click quickly something very practical. The best way I have ever seen this done is when you take a highly respected leader, get them bought into whatever the training is that you're executing and actually having them show up and say, hey, I'm here and I have something to learn too. I've reached this point in my career but I can always grow and I can always learn. And I mean, literally to the point where they sit down at the table and they're joining in on the exercises and they're right there sort of humbling themselves to say, it doesn't matter how long you've been here or what your title is or where you are in your career, there's always an opportunity to do better, grow and right. learn more. Yeah. I like that. And I do think that absolutely why is the place to start giving them the case for change. And it really is about change management because we're asking them to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so helping understand that why and giving some real tangible examples of what's changed. And it goes back to the discussion we had earlier. Our environment has changed. The way our KOLs get information and how fast they can get it has changed. So, you know, that is, there's a big why there. And then, you know, Taylor mentions bringing somebody as somebody senior, somebody respected. But I think to, as, as she said, it could even be a peer to talk about the value and the benefit of them doing something different and making it really tangible. I, you know, I am, um, I, I often say that I think training is a gift. You know, when organizations invest in training, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not, it's time and, and it's, it's resource it's in, in whatever form. And how often are we given the opportunity to step away from our crazy day jobs and to step in and to say, this is my opportunity for me to grow, for me to develop. You know, I've been given this gift and, and I, I, I really think that it's, it's it, it is a gift, but we all know that you know, the world has been different over the last 12 to 18 months for, for many MSLs. And I think that we would like to do um, a poll at this point. So for everyone who's, who's and, and, and please, um, you know, panelists, please feel free to join in. So for anyone who's received training in the last 12 months, how relevant have they felt to you as an individual? Well, one is, never relevant and 10 is always relevant. We're, we're, we're keen to understand what your thoughts are on this. Kevin, what, what, what are you thinking about what we're seeing on the screen here? We're definitely seeing a mix. Um, and, and I think we would do, no, no, no matter what 12 month periods we, we were talking about. Um, but, but I think there has been kind of a, a flooding of the workplace with training because we had people kind of trapped at home. Um, so I, I think there will always be people that are willing to take training on no matter what it's training about because that's just the way their, their mind works. And there will be people that need to be more convinced that actually the training is relevant. And, and we, we, you know, we've got examples of, of organizations where people are saying we're trained out. You know, we've had too much 
So it doesn't matter how relevant any subsequent training is, you just can't take on anymore. So I, I think I think seeing the range is normal. I think what we need to consider is what do we do now? So as the world starts to become a little bit more normal, do we go to you know having having a break for twelve months, which probably isn't the right <laughs> thing to do? But do we think about you know what we do and who we do it for? And I think we're going to come on to to discuss that in a bit more detail a bit later on. Yeah, I was just going to say one of the challenges I've been having, because in my role, I work with the, the different regions and the leaders of each of the MSL teams. And so we're creating different types of trainings based on what their needs are. But one of the things that we hear is that, you know, they're too busy. We don't have time for training like we can. I don't want to take them off territory. Our managers have so much else to do. So, you know, and it's a catch 22 because they need to be trained. But, you know, I also think about how I need to, the different ways I need to roll out training and thinking of the, the 70, 20, 10 principle, where the bulk of it should be training in, in their day job and what they're doing and really just the 10%. Because I think when people hear training, they think about, oh, I have to take a course and I have to like take time off territory. So we need to shift that thinking a little bit around, okay, yeah, that's important. But then how are we integrating the 20% where you're learning as through a mentor, through a group, and then really make it active learning in your day-to-day -day job, whether it's through coaching or something else. But again, the, the, when you say training, people always think of, oh, have to pull them off territory. Yeah. yeah. If I can go, go back to one of the things that the word I mentioned uh, earlier was applicability. And I think Taylor hit a, hit, a, hit a key spot there of having one of the senior leaders or someone come in to say it's okay you know all of us need this training no matter where you are at the stage uh and applicability for training we can all get better no matter what it is even if it's just having a conversation uh, about the given topic we can bring it up and we can all hone our skills a little bit but the other side of that applicability is to to your exact point here kevin about feeling there there's too much training is bringing in the end users or the MSLs as we identify what we, what we look at through leadership, whatever it is and develop what our gaps and what our needs are. But to make sure we're hitting that applicability is to bring some of them in on the development. So whether it's from concept design to content to creation, to execution, they're on board the whole way. So we make sure we're, we're not just shooting at a target, but we're actually hitting the mark uh, to do it. And I think that's, that's where the secret sauce or the magic comes in, that the training is actually applicable. So it's applicable to what they're being trained on and how it's going to fit their everyday components. Then they can go out and present that data that's applicable to whatever, uh, to whatever the clinician it really has in their concerns. I, yeah. I, I can, 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 can I just mention there's, a, there's been a little bit of chatting chat and uh, George and Rainey have both talked about it's, it's, it's fine to do the training, it's what comes after the training that's really important, it's the helping those individuals to embed or use those new skills, that new knowledge, as, as you said Jim, in an applicable way. So it isn't a one and done. It isn't, here's a course, I've got a manual, I'm going to put it on my bookshelf and I'm going to look at it in five years time when I can't stand the dust on it any longer. It's about what does this mean? 
how do I use it? And how am I going to know I'm doing it right? So um, our, our next our next webinar is around coaching. And actually, that's the most important thing to happen following a training event. But don't get me started on that today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is a poll that we'd like everyone to participate in. So even panelists, please feel. So, so, so how can upskilling needs be identified within companies? Yeah, so there's no one outright winner. So, that, so, so upskilling needs are identified in, in, in a number of ways, aren't they? Leadership have told us to. <laughs> oh, I, I love the honesty. Thank you. I'm I'm overwhelmed by the individual development planning process because that, in in my experience, has been lost in many places. So actually, we've gone back to because it's easier because we're talking about big numbers. We're talking about uh, developing people according to their job role rather than their specific needs. So I think the the, the individual planning process is it's fantastic to see they're so high. Um, and, and Rainey actually brought up uh, one in the, the chat and other one around in relation to 360 feedback. So other people are noticing something about you that might um, uh, engender a, a development need for you. The, 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 the beauty of it is that development needs are being identified um, and, and that's where we need to start. But it does need to be a done with process, not a done to process. So even if there's a, a training needs analysis, which I know we're going to discuss in a minute, that actually there's a right to reply. So we're, we're looking for evidence supporting that training need, for instance. And we're thinking about that evidence on an individual basis. If we're expecting uh, MSLs and our teams to to manage our HCPs as individuals, they should at least have the right to be treated as individuals themselves. So some flexibility in approach. So I'm, I'm reassured to see people commenting on through a new organizational definition of MSL excellence, because to me, this is kind of back to the operational components, so less so about the individual, but the organization is recognizing that upskilling might be required to support people in terms of the evolution of, of, the, of the individuals within the organization so that the organization can respond appropriately. Would any of the other panelists, anyone like to comment on, on, on what you're seeing there? Any thoughts, Donna, uh, anything from your side? There, there's so many different needs and there's so many different ways. I really agree in the individual development plan. I was just, in a group talking about the importance of that. And it seems like a lot of companies don't have that. Um, but I think you really need to be open to understand where those needs are. There was a question that came in, how do you approach training when MSL, MSL leadership does not know or think they need it or not vocal about their training? You know, and it ties into this because I think what you need to do, you, you won't be successful if they don't think they need it, they don't want it, is going back to, what are the needs? I mean, clearly the person has identified a need and it had to have come from somewhere. And it's going back to the why around why this is important and sharing, you know, what that, you know, where that need came from. Um, so I think there's so many different areas where the need could be identified. Um, and it's so important when you go do that training to be really clear. And it goes back to the communication wheel or circle around starting with the why. 
Yeah. And I think just to, just to add in briefly, I, I think there's a cultural element to that. So how does an organization see development? Because if people think that development or training is only offered as a remedial solution, mm -hmm. so people are doing something wrong, they need to do something differently, rather than people are doing well, they could be even better, then, then that has a, a, a different kind of effect on people's uh, feelings about the offering in the first place. And that goes back to Taylor's growth mindset. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. That's why I'm glad to see that leadership told us to do so, ranked so low on the scale. <laughs> I actually voted for all of them with the exception of I don't know because I'm a data I'm a data nerd so if I can compile multiple sources of information that all tend to suggest the same needs or the same trends that's actually a really powerful tool to take back to the question that Donna pulled out of the Q&A how do you tell people they need training if they don't think they need training or they don't want training remember that you know, we're medical affairs. We're all a bunch of scientists. So data is really powerful. So if you can offer data back to people, a lot of times they start to respond to that. And, and I think the other thing that probably takes more time to do if you're with a group of people who are a bit resistant to development and training, but can work really well is they have to be getting real feedback. Um, they have to know that there are gaps. I mean, if you tell a group of people that they're great and then tell them that they need training, of course they don't think they need training because they've been told they were great. So I think coaching, if that's the next one, is going to be a hugely, hugely powerful topic that will help with a topic like this because getting feedback, real feedback, is, is critical to the success of MSL excellence and development. Fantastic conversation and discussion. So... I'm wondering here uh, if, if we should, so this was really, we, we've explored that question and that was the question that I think you've all spoken to. I think it was building on, on Donna's point. So, you know, what do we mean by the training needs analysis and, and just a very simple visual to bring that to life. And Kevin, I know that um, you want to just sort of maybe just clarify what we mean for those people who may not be so familiar with what an IDP is and, and what the value is. Do you want to just talk us through that? Yeah, so so people are people are, are relatively familiar with doing a training needs analysis. So they will identify the things that need to happen. They then don't necessarily think about how do I make that happen for all these people that I need to work with. And so having this approach to an individualized development plan and thinking about how people learn best will actually talk to Donna's point from earlier. You know, it might not be a training course. It might be ride alongs with a colleague who's more experienced and better at a skill. It might be having an action learning set where six people get together and, and talk about solving a, uh, solving a problem together. It could be that actually we set out some project work. You know, often I, I remember at times during my career being given a project for my development, when actually that project was being given to me because my boss didn't want to do it themselves. So it was a way of kind of passing the monkey, if, if that's familiar. But, but we should be looking at what is going to help 
these individuals achieve what they need to achieve. Sometimes that's as simple as being shown what good looks like and allowing them to adapt that for themselves. It's not a one size fits all. And, and actually a good discussion between manager and I've thought about maybe doing it in this way. What support can you give me? And that works at every level throughout the organization. You know, let's, let's not forget that, that the, the CEO, the general manager, the, the, the global lead for a company will have some kind of developmental support. That might be a coach, but they may well still be going to, you know, workshops with other people. Uh, at, at the same level in different organizations. It's about learning, it's about growing. So the more we can make this fit for the individual that we're talking about, the better it will be. When we asked the question within the survey, within our survey in 2020, this is what the MSL community told us. Um, and, and it speaks to your point, Donna, that um, you know, for 50, half of people, they, they, they didn't have a development plan, they didn't have an IDP. And so we thought it would be interesting to just to hear from participants in the line. So for everyone, irrespective of seniority or role, do you currently have an IDP or PDP? Good, but as, I think as Donna said though, that you know, that there are many organizations that, that don't currently use IDPs. So perhaps that will be a take home action for, for some companies when maybe not for those who've let's, attended here. Let's, let's not forget for individuals that are motivated, they can create their own IDPs and they can have that discussion with their manager. It doesn't need to be a corporate approach. Actually, this is who I am. This is where I want to be. This is how I want to develop. These are my suggestions. How can you support me in that? to all of the participants, what would you like to ask the panel? What would you like to hear from them um, so that, um, you know, uh, you, you can benefit from, from their expertise and, and their interest? I may, maybe I'll start, uh, I'll just start a question to the panel. Has the panel heard anything today that, that's kind of, that's given them food for thought or that they hadn't thought about previously? I think it's that refresh uh, and the reminder of all the different ways we can do the needs assessment and to really look at what the what those training pieces are that are going to be needed for upskilling. Because we, we always look and we sometimes just think we know the answer. But as uh, I think Rainey put in there in the chat with a 360 evaluation, we perceive what we think, but sometimes it's really good to to look what other people perceive of us or what they are. And for someone to look at, to, to the self-respection point, I think Taylor commented as well in the chat on that, is it opens up the eyes a little bit and we all have to be willing to receive that. So as an individual, we look to see how we can upscale ourselves. But if we look at that feedback as a whole, it really opens up and tells us a little bit about what that needs assessment is. So, Kevin, are you going to share this question? Yeah, we, we got, got a question from George, which was yeah. kind of early, yeah. earlier on. And his question is, great clouds. So we're talking about the word clouds and, and the, the movement um, in, in the, the, the focus. So great word clouds 2016 versus 2021 from the industry. How do you envision this cloud in 2025? 
I think the word digital will be very dominant in there, George. <laughs> Although I, my, my personal view on that is, is that I really, whilst I really respect the advances in digital technology, I, I'm a strong believer in the value of the human to human interaction. So it's how we can balance the two. So um, that's something that I'm, I'm thinking about. Yeah. So, so this is a question for our panelists, because obviously that we, we can't answer this one. What is your methodology in choosing between using a vendor to develop or deliver training versus developing or delivering using internal team members and training? I think this is a great question. And I think it's something that as a training lead, you try to balance constantly. For me, I really look at expertise. Um, if I'm gonna go outside and, and find an agency or a vendor to partner with on a specific thing, I really want them to truly be experts in that space and bring a lot of value. And I would say, even when we partner with agencies and vendors to do training, we still put together a small working group of people internally to make sure that whatever we're getting from the vendor is still highly, highly applicable and has been kind of filtered through the lens of our company. Um, and then internally, when we when we shift and we focused internally, obviously it's you know finding to, to Kevin's point earlier when we think about that 70 and 20, like do we have people within our organization who are excellent at whatever it is we want to train on? And I think if you do, leveraging that expertise and the built-in respect that comes with it, because their peers hopefully respect them and look up to them for that skill, actually brings a ton of power to the ability to train on those things. So for me, it all comes down to expertise and, of course, what my budget looks like. <laughs> Donna, you're, you're all muted. What would you add to yeah. Donna's question? I, I was going to say very similar to Taylor. I mean, for me, where I am now, and actually even my last organizations, a lot of it is just capacity and budget, like how much can we really take on? And I take the same approach as Taylor in terms of ensuring that we've got a project team that is working very close or closely with a vendor partner to make sure that the training is in our language and oftentimes using the individuals inside as the facilitators and really being at the front in delivering it so that it feels very much like a company program. Um, but then again, you know, as Taylor mentioned too, is really finding those that have expertise um, that have like benchmarking because they've worked with other companies. Um, and, you know, I've, I've worked with Helen and her team and, you know, the, the knowledge that they bring in working with other companies, you know, seeing how MSLing is done elsewhere is really valuable. But again, customizing it so it is very specific for our company. Thanks, Donna. Jim? Absolutely. Uh, um, partially, I, I will agree completely with the, with the applicability uh, and finding the right fit in a partner. Um, that can do this. And as Donna just alluded to is it needs to seem like it's coming from the company to have it. So they're speaking the same language and really, and, and bringing that point across. But I also want to, you know, call the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room in the aspect of, Hey, sometimes as an internal trainer or someone, a person going, I can tell everybody the sky's blue, but they're not going to listen to me. But if someone from a vendor comes in as an expert and says, the sky's blue, they're going to believe it. But all of that has to be uh, applicable to where we're trying to go with a vision and hit those uh, and hit the needs that that have been uh, have been addressed in your needs assessment. Yeah, the key to that, as I said, the key to that vendor is really finding a, is finding a someone whose style can be a partner 
uh, and really want to co-create with along with the, your training team as well as some of your uh, some of your end users as well. Thanks, Jim. Another great question. This one from Rainey. To have a growth mindset, you also need to have a beginner's mindset, which means you have to be willing to fail sometimes. How is it best to create a safe environment for that to happen? Um, something that we've talked about a bit in my previous companies is around psychological safety, um, knowing that you've got trust um, amongst your colleagues and that you're gonna get that feedback and that, you know what, we all will fail, particularly when we're trying new things, but we need to figure out what we, what we learned from that. So, you know, when I talk about psychological safety and ways in doing that is having team norms, is having some team building. And, you know, so, because you don't want finger pointing, you wanna be able to learn. And we've talked quite a bit already about getting that honest, open feedback, because that's really gonna, going to be what helps us grow. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I uh, agree with that. And it's always we try and look at the look at a learning wheel that we talk about. It's not just about the information and providing the data and providing the pieces, but it's then providing the context of how does it fit into our strategy? Where are we going? What's our vision? But then the application is that take home piece. And, and, and Donna, you just said it. It's it, it's having a safe environment and let people know, hey, let's practice it here. And let's look at it away because the last, we want to set people up for success. We want them. So when they're in front of a clinician, a KOL, that they're ready to knock it out of the park. And we all stumble over things and say things the wrong way. We want to be comfortable um, that we can present the data um, in, in the applicable manner uh, and, you know, be smooth in our delivery. Thank you. Taylor? Yeah, not a whole lot to add. I would just maybe just build on on both of the things that have been said. You know, very practically, there is technology now that allows you to literally create a safe kind of uh, worry-free environment for people to practice things like presentation skills, right? Just as basic as turning on your webcam, recording yourself and sending it to your manager. So I think things like that. But I think, you know, to Rainey's critical point, it's all about creating a culture where there is a baseline of trust. And because yeah. we're all on this journey of development, we all understand that we will not always get it right initially, but that's okay because we're moving forward and we're progressing. And honestly, most of the times you have to fail to succeed. One of the things my PhD mentor told me early in my career was if it works the first time, it'll never work again. So you always want the first one to fail. <laughs> and, and that was, it was really very true. So I think, um, you know, just creating this very safe and trusting environment to facilitate an ability to grow. And going back to that earlier point of having someone senior within the organization attend the training and show vulnerability makes it okay for everyone else. So, so really positive. Uh, and the only thing that I would add to all of this is, you know, it's really interesting, the idea of failing. I, I feel that um, what we sometimes forget is that we all have our own unique style, our own unique approach to different situations and and what some of us might feel like you know we're somehow failing actually to somebody else you may have just created a light bulb moment for them so really sharing sharing and learning from one another and sharing challenges together in a really safe space 
sometimes you that's where the learning happens just from hearing from your colleagues from exploring the whatever that challenge may be and hearing how something has been addressed so it's not it's not a skill but it's simply about recognizing that there is a different way to think about it uh, we, we talk about creative problem solving so um yeah so I think the safe space though is, is is absolutely key. So thank you for the question and your contribution, Rainey. So really we're um we're we're coming into the last two minutes of, of, of the session and I and I did say it would fly past and it has flown past. Um can you just share with us in, in, in chat what might you do as a result of what you're hearing in the webinar? We'd really be interested to know of what actions people might take. And I realize that we haven't got a huge amount of time. Taylor? Um, so the big thing for me actually that I'm gonna take back is going to look at my 18 month training plan and check it against the 70-20-10. Just, you know, it was a great reminder from Donna and in the slides to just make sure we really haven't forgotten about the 70 and 20 because it's really easy to focus on the 10 sometimes. Brilliant. Fantastic. Jim or Donna, is there anything that you, any sort of moments of inspiration that you've had? Our fiscal cycle started in April. And so we are in the IDP timeframe right now. Everybody's building their IDPs. So it's always great. You do that, but then you put them away. So in my trainings and as I deliver things into the region, I'm going to remind people about working their IDP because in the companies that have them, where you have the requirement, you have to have them. Mine has to be uploaded in the system before the end of the month. And then they go there. And then, you know, I have a great manager who says, let's, let's have discussions. So I think I'll remind managers, like you should be having those discussions, but reminding individuals because they own their IDP to, mm. to really work that IDP. So it doesn't become a, you know, once a year document, just like performance reviews. Fantastic. Any final point from you, Jim? I sort of feel that we can't we can't go without just coming to you for a final word. <laughs> I, I I think uh, in looking as we develop our global plan that we want to put together, uh, I hearken back to to making sure we have something that's fit to our strategy as an organization for where we're headed. But then each region is going to have their individual needs, just like any individual person has their own IDP. So whether we're we're adapting and looking what is the applicability and what makes us for, you know, for the Japanese market or for the market in Germany where it's going to be, we, we've got to look at applicability. Um, so it fits our overall global strategy, but it has to hit the local level. So it's really going to hit home. Thank you. So we've actually gone over. So apologies to all of, all of everyone for, for that, but I just think it was really worth finishing um, on hearing some final thoughts from the panelists. So once again, panelists, thank you so much for your participation in today's session. And huge thanks to all of our uh, online audience for your questions and for keeping the conversation going. Um, you know, having that two-way engagement really brings these webinars to life. So um, we have our, our final webinar coming up in a month on, on the subject of coaching. So we'd love for as many of you as possible to, to sign up and join and be part of that. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Bye everyone.